Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and it's remarkable to think but 75 years ago this month in March 1946, Churchill gave his famous sinews of peace speech, otherwise known as his Iron Curtain speech. It's no coincidence that this was given in the United States, that President Truman was in the audience and it was all about shaping the agenda for the emerging Cold War. As Churchill said, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. But what was going through Churchill's mind at the time? It hadn't been long since he had been surprisingly ousted from power and he still saw himself as a world leader setting a foreign policy agenda. He would be again in 1951 when he was elected, but he didn't know this at the time. So what was Churchill up to? Well, to tell us more, we have world-leading Churchill expert, Dr. Warren Doctor. What he doesn't know isn't worth knowing. He's been through all the archives, and believe me, what he has to say about Churchill is truly fascinating. So here's Dr. Warren Doctor. Hi, Warren. Thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? Doing very well, sir. Thanks for having me, James. Not a problem at all. Congratulations on your new position, by the way. You are now the CEO of the East Tennessee Historical Society. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm very, very pleased to be back home in my hometown of Knoxville and working with our museum and in our archives and just bringing East Tennessee history to the world, which, as you know, has not been my specialty. So I'm making a bit of a transition, but it's something I've always been deeply fascinated in. Yeah, I look forward to hearing more about it. And Knoxville is a long way from where you have been living, which was Aberystwyth, right? That's correct. I was in international politics at Aberystwyth University, and then I got the opportunity to go from the Irish Sea now to the Smoky Mountains, which (laughs) I love. And there are some really remarkable connections here that actually interlink with the British imperial history. And one of the things I've been dealing with, there's a new archaeological dig around Fort Loudoun where I think there were about 27 to 47 British troops were massacred by the Cherokee in retaliation to a massacre that had happened against the Cherokee in North Carolina. Anyway, they've recently discovered this This is a place near Kane's Creek where the old Fort Loudoun had been. 
There's some interesting things like that. So the next time I'm in the British Library, I'm going to be looking at the Colonial Office archives under George III, because there'll be a lot of exchanging on Native American affairs. Is this what got you into studying British history and Churchill? Was it the kind of looming British presence in the United States, or was there something else? No, I do think my own story is such that I was interested in the British Empire for a long time, and I got interested in that in college. And I had very good British history teachers at the university named Paul Pickney, and I was always sort of interested in European history as well, and how these global things affect the local. And so a lot of people here were like, well, what's Warren doing moving from British history to East Tennessee history? And in fact, they're kind of the same because it's global, right? I mean, everything's interconnected. So I was naturally interested in the British Empire. And then, of course, my grandfather was in the Second World War and was actually a member of the OSS for a time because he could speak German. His father, you know, German was still spoken in the house. And so I became interested in the Second World War. And then through this and my own grandfather discussing Winston Churchill's speeches and his effect on him as an American hearing Winston Churchill is one of the things that drew me into looking at Winston Churchill. And then I was, because I was interested in the British imperialism anyway, I got very interested in the Middle East because, of course, the time I'm at university is when 9-11 happens and Western relations with the Islamic world had really broken down after that, unsurprisingly. And so all these things sort of joined together for me and have now taken me on, I think, a really exciting intellectual adventure. Well, from you discussing Churchill's speeches with your granddad to you discussing Churchill's speeches here on The World Wars, because in March 1946, Churchill delivered his famous Iron Curtain speech. Tell us a little bit about Churchill at this point. Where is he in his personal and political frame of mind? Is he still jubilant at victory in the war, or is he a bit dismayed from being ousted from power in '45? Well, I think it's both. And obviously, he was very happy to have gotten through this. But he knew he was going to get through this after D-Day, really. Once D-Day was successful, it was a ticking clock. And for Churchill, I think the biggest thing he faced was the fact that he'd been ousted. He didn't understand it. Stalin didn't understand it. Nobody could really explain it. And what's really interesting, I had a student who's now actually writing on why Churchill lost the 1945 election. It's an infinitely wider policy than Churchill. And in fact, as you probably know, Labor's, one of their slogans for 1945 was cheer for Churchill, vote for Labor. And so there was a real interesting confluence here about party versus man, man versus party. Is it about Churchill? Is it about the party system? And if you look, one of the things people often forget about this moment, particularly for Churchill, is Churchill had spent the last 15 years distancing himself from the conservative party. He disagreed with them about India. He disagreed with them about appeasement, going all the way back to Baldwin. And so it should be no surprise to us that when 1945 rolls around and the conservatives are seeking an election, Churchill's not necessarily the right frontman for the conservative party because he's like, look how bad the conservative policies have been. So all that war he was waging against Chamberlain and Baldwin for years had paid dividends. And of course, when he formed a national government, he came in and worked with Attlee and he came in and he worked with Sinclair and the liberals. So It really isn't as surprising as people would think because of the party system, number one. And then there's lots of stuff in Richard Toy's work on Churchill's speeches, and he focuses primarily on the war speeches. But the Gestapo speech is another thing that props up because people had just gone through this war, and then Churchill warns of a looming threat of labor in fantastical ways, that there's going to be some Orwellian nightmare that happens, a sort of labor Gestapo. 
And immediately, those that remembered would have been taken back, I think, to the Chinat crisis, when right after the First World War, Churchill and Lloyd George were like, if Turkey crosses this line, we're going to war, and even volunteered the Commonwealth countries that they were going to get involved. And of course, they immediately sent press things saying, look, this has nothing to do with us. And as a result, it destroyed the Lloyd George coalition. And Lloyd George never held another public office after that. And Churchill should consider himself very lucky that he did, even though he went through very positive 20s for him, but he spent the 30s in the wilderness. So I think there was a flashback moment after this speech. And I think that a lot of historians have said, oh, maybe the speech wasn't that important. But I think it probably was. And I think Richard Toy's work, The Roar of the Lion, is the name of the book where he looks at Churchill's speeches. And he doesn't get into the post-war speeches so much. So he never touches on the sinews of peace speech that we're discussing today. So for Churchill, I think he's still dismayed. And what you can see is the fact that, okay, he's no longer in power per se. But Attlee's focus, rightfully so, was on the domestic. He's got to get Britain in order, the welfare state. We got to figure out how to recover from this war, how to use the funds for the Marshall Plan. He's busy doing local things. So Churchill sees his identity as leader of the opposition, I think, as an opportunity to do things in foreign policy. And that more or less dictates the way he saw leadership the rest of his life, because even when he enters his premiership in 51, he's solely focused on foreign policy and left all the domestic stuff up to Rab Butler and Macmillan and others. And so I think he starts this moment because he sees himself as sort of wizened statement. Roosevelt was gone. Stalin had become increasingly difficult to deal with. So he was the last man standing of the big three. And he saw himself as the donkey leading the American buffalo and the Russian bear home, as he famously said in his World War II memoirs. So give us a little context about this speech then. If Britain has gone from war to a transition of time of peace and it's dealing with domestic issues, is this Churchill still desperately trying to fire warning shots about a coming Cold War? Well, see, this is one of the real interesting things is that people have used this speech and said, look, Churchill understood Jewish politics probably better than anyone alive at the time, but certainly in the West. And that's probably true because he understood what was coming. But was he a cold warrior in 1946? He certainly is by the time he gives his speech. But I think even if you go through the documents around Yalta and Potsdam, he had this idea that Stalin was a man he could do business with. They understood each other. And we have to understand all of the big three were out for themselves. Going back to Yalta, then to Potsdam, you can see increasingly Britain is marginalized. Now, this isn't Churchill's fault. This is a geostrategic reality, right? The British Empire will never be, can never be what it had been. And it is the diminutive player. This is just through the transition of the war. And the truth is, Britain had been a diminished player since the First World War, and America had been in the ascendancy to sort of replace it, as it were. And Churchill, I think, quite rightly understood that going in. This is why after the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbor, he went to bed and he slept his greatest sleep. And you can see that's one of the reasons he courts America in so much. And you can see this work in Gilbert. You can see this work again in in Toy about the importance of Churchill bringing in the America and his entire strategy and thinking, and this is very important, around what he called the English-speaking people. Because if you think about it for a second, the Anglophone world, what does that even mean? Lots of people speak English that are not ethnically or culturally related in any kind of way, but Churchill tries to create this artifice in his head. And then, of course, writes a history of it, which he publishes after the war in four volumes, which he wanted to be a magnum opus and is much closer to a sort of Whiggish, Gibbon-esque history full of romance and interesting things. 
And it tells us a lot about how Churchill understood the world. Of course, he didn't write a whole lot of it either. And this we know from people like David Reynolds and others. A lot of his assistants wrote this, but of course he had to sign off on it. So he must have at least had something in the game. So I think for Churchill, it is a transitional moment, but he still hoped that there would be a decent relationship with Russia. After Potsdam, I think that probably started to fade because it was clear, and it has to do with Turkey, in fact, which I talk about in my own book, Churchill and the Islamic World, that Russia was making its continual play for the Dardanelles Straits, that it wanted access to the Mediterranean, that it felt like it deserved it. And Churchill, being a son of the 19th century, did his best to prop Turkey up against Russia. And this is old school, Victorian, great game politics. And this is something I'm very deeply fascinated in, is how Churchill took thinking from the 19th century and put it in a 20th century Cold War. And if you look at the map of containment from 1890 and the map of containment in 1950, they're not that different. And I think that that's a remarkable thing because it tells us a lot about why Churchill, who had been one of the leading anti-Bolshevik voices to the point where Lloyd George had to say, gosh, calm down, man, shut up. Nobody cares about this. To somebody that we know from the Russian ambassador to Britain, he and Churchill were friends. We know from his diaries that Churchill's already as early as maybe 32, 33, putting out feelers to see how Russia feels about Germany. So I guess it'd be 34, 35. And that the Russian ambassador was surprised by this because Churchill had such a reputation. Well, one of the things I think that's very interesting there is that tells us that Churchill understood Cold War politics, not as an ideological capitalism versus communism kind of game, but closer and more akin to the great game, you know, the struggle between the Russian empire and the British empire in the 19th century. And so then you can sit down and do a deal. It isn't ideological, it's pragmatic. And I think that tells us a lot about how he saw the Cold War. Did you look up the name of that book? Or you... I mean, it's right off the top of my head, of course, Warren. I didn't Google it at all. It's not uh, Gabriel Gorodetsky by any chance. I believe it might be. <laughs> I think it's really important to help us understand Churchill's view of the world. And so what happens, just to tie this back to the context we're talking about, is that after Potsdam, after Churchill's ousted from power, it becomes clear to him that Stalin is no longer a reasonable player. There's no pragmatic way to bring Stalin into the tent, particularly now that Roosevelt was gone and that Truman was so heavily anti-communist. And of course, Churchill had tethered himself to the English-speaking world. And so it became very clear to him how the board was going to be set. And that's really, in many ways, what the sinews of peace speech is about, I think, is him saying this is what the post-war order is going to look like. But when I look through some of the decisions that Churchill was trying to make in terms of actual strategy during the Second World War, had he not really been trying to counter Stalin for a good long time, at least from late 43 into 1944, and it was the Americans who were still trying to win the war against the Germans, which Churchill thought was already won, and he was trying to position for a very much different world in the 1940s and into the 1950s. There's absolutely no question about that. And I mean, boy, the difference in how Roosevelt wanted in the American perspective of what he wanted for the Russians and what Churchill wanted for the Russians is pretty night and day. But because of the diminished position of Britain, Churchill is forced to accept these positions that the Americans push. And you can see that as early as the Atlantic Charter, because in that, I believe it's the seventh point or whatever, I don't remember exactly which point it is, but essentially it says 
this is the end of colonialism. We will no longer suffer this to live. Well, for Churchill, that's a huge problem. That's an enormous identity issue because he is, if nothing else, a 19th century imperialist. And so for all of his reasons that Britain should be in India or whatever he believes, he does believe it. And so Roosevelt, and you can look at the correspondence between Churchill and Roosevelt and see how heated this got between them about India. In Churchill's position, which I think is fascinating, is he becomes a sort of champion for Muslim civil rights in India to anyone that will listen to him because he say, well, they have to be protected. Even though there's 90 million Muslims there, they're a minority group and they have to be protected. You know, and it has little to do with his genuine belief in minority rights. But it has a lot to do with him just trying to figure out a way to justify being an Indian. And so you can see this playing out in the positions between them. And so whereas I think Roosevelt was much more eager to work with Stalin and to try to build a more equitable post-war order that is not so antagonistic and more akin to sort of 19th century spheres of influence, Churchill was concerned that the Russian sphere of influence was going to get into the Mediterranean. And of course, what's in the eastern Mediterranean? Britain, Cyprus its relationship with Turkey, who Churchill spent a lot of time trying to keep neutral and did. And eventually Turkey entered the war, I think a few days before it ended, as a symbolic gesture against the Germans. So you can see that there's this tension, I think, that's rising anyway, particularly between, not necessarily personally between Churchill and Stalin, but certainly between their positions. And I mean, there are times when Stalin would make a joke about every German officer he was going to kill. This is the all-time. And Churchill was outraged because one of the fundamental principles of Winston Churchill, which I genuinely have admired in him, is magnanimity and victory, right? And he even says that at the front of his war memoirs. And you can see that he genuinely believes this, even from as a soldier in the Anglo-Dervish War, the second that the Dervish submit, he wants to help them. And this is true of the Germans in the First World War. It's true of the Boers. He gets in trouble because he writes defenses of the Boers after the Boer War. He gets in trouble with Lloyd George because he wants to feed the Germans immediately. So you can see there is a kindness in him. So anyway, Stalin says he wants to kill all the German officers. And Churchill was outraged. And Stalin's sort of joking, and he doesn't read it as a joke. And then Roosevelt jokingly says, well, we'll just kill half of them. And Churchill still doesn't understand that it's a joke and is outraged by this. So there are these interesting moments. And of course, there's that apocryphal story that Jock Colville, Churchill's private secretary, says about Stalin not understanding jokes, too, when they're like, well, you know, what about religion? Are you concerned about religion in Russia and Catholicism? And he, not even thinking, understanding the position, is like, well, how many divisions does the Pope have, thinking that the Pope commanded divisions? So, you know, there's a lot of cultural back and forth here that maybe gets lost. And this is why some of the amazing work like the Daughters of Yalta and that kind of stuff sheds light on these amazing exchanges that these men have because they're literally carving out what the world's going to look like. But what is clear is by March 1946, Churchill sees what the world is and discusses it with Truman. Truman originally, as I understand it, on the train liked it, but then publicly was like, we didn't, this has nothing to do with me right? Because it's quite controversial what Churchill comes out. But it is a remarkable speech. And it's remarkable because it does, I think, three things. These are the sort of main things that it does. The first and most important, as we've been discussing, is it says this is what the future of the world is going to look like. There's our sphere of influence in Western Europe. America's a part of that. There's the Iron Curtain. So this is where the term Iron Curtain comes from. It's famously called the Iron Curtain speech, even though it's actually titled Sinews of Peace. And beyond that, sphere of influence is 
Russia, and we don't exactly know what their intentions are, but we know it's not good. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I think this is just as powerful, and this is a contextual thing, and it speaks to today's politics. This is the first time in a major speech, and this often gets overlooked because the spotlight's always on the post-war order. That's what everybody goes to. This is also where Churchill describes the quote-unquote special relationship with America. This is hugely important. Churchill, since the 20s, had wanted a closer relationship with the United States, so much so that he even designed a joint currency. He later goes on to talk about having joint passports and joint citizenship. Churchill's a huge believer in that history of the English-speaking people, you know, the English-speaking people, and he sees Britain as intrinsically linked to America, and so it is. Now, why this is especially interesting in 1946, so you see today, think about the news We could go as far back as you want with this because it's a recurring trope in the British media. But let's start with Barack Obama. His administration came to power and they removed Churchill's bus. And then there was a flurry of, oh, you know, the special relationship's dead. The special relationship's toast. Oh, culturally, we'll never be the same. Oh, it's gone. And everyone wrings their hands about how much Britain and America can't talk to each other. And then, of course, Trump's elected. And it's the same thing. Oh, Britain couldn't possibly. Oh, the special relationship's dead. And you get this recurring trope with whatever administration comes in. And now Biden's elected. And of course, the bust has been replaced. And oh, the special relationship, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's go back to 1946. And I'll explain to you why when people worry about the special relationship being broken, it's nonsense. And it will remain nonsense. So during the Second World War, and this won't come as a surprise to you, James, I believe it's 1942, the Bursa Act. British USA Act. And what that does is it allows us to share intelligence. This has never been done in a way like this. And it's an act that's passed by the U.S. Congress. Now, it's a temporary act for wartime. But this is what allows all those amazing intelligence sharing things that eventually Operation Fortitude, the double cross system, Ultra, all the decrypted stuff, all the amazing spy thriller things we all know about, all the James Bond. This is the thing that fuses together. That's during the war. Well, after the war, suddenly, there's no real reason to have that. And it's in 1947, which is broadly in the context of this speech, because, of course, Truman and Churchill are very close, that the UK-USA Act is passed, which formally writes, again, into American law in perpetuity that we will share intelligence, that we will have a relationship around intelligence. As long as that law is on the books, the special relationship, whatever else is going on, We share intelligence, and that is the bedrock of our relationship as two nations. The five eyes, all those things. So this idea that, oh, the special relationship's shaky, all this kind of things, it isn't. It's fine. It's literally written into the law on our side of the pond, and it is on your side. So there's an understanding, a sharing, a true relationship. So this can all be read back into that moment in 1946 when Churchill calls it the special relationship in this speech, and he outlines how this is going to go. And I think that that's remarkable because it's folded into the idea of the post-war order, but it very clearly aligns Britain and the United States, again, in perpetuity. And I think that's a remarkable thing. And I mean, I say that as an American who studied in Britain for 12 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's truly remarkable. And of course, it is reinforced by the fact that Churchill is over in the US giving this speech. Truman is in the audience. This is his 
big world stage once again to show how America and the UK can really start to battle against the rising Soviet powers. And he does, he does that line in the speech where he says, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. But we've spoken about Truman and Churchill, and even Roosevelt before that, of course. But what's Stalin's opinion of this speech? Well, see, I'm glad you mentioned it, because I have another book here that I edited called Winston Churchill, The Telegraph, which looked at his stories for The Telegraph, as well as The Telegraph's reporting on him. One of the things that I was able to find in this book is actually Stalin's response. And I'm going to read you some of it because it deserves reading, and it really lets us view Stalin, and because it's Stalin's view, ergo the Soviet Union's view of this speech. Now, this came originally from an interview that Stalin gave in Pravada, the Soviet newspaper magazine. And he sees this as an affront. What this does is, and this goes back to that 19th century thinking again, that is, I'm surrounded. It puts it right back into I'm being contained, which of course is what an Iron Curtain is talking about containment. This is, again, that 19th century great game or tournament of shadows, as it's called in Russia. That playbook is being put into the 20th century. And that's how Stalin reads it. And what I find that's remarkable. So he's asked the question, and it's done as an interview. Pravada asked Joseph Stalin, can one consider that speech of Mr. Churchill is prejudicial to the cause of peace and security? Joseph Stalin's answer is this. Yes, unquestionably. To all intents and purposes, Mr. Churchill now takes his stand among the warmongers. In this, Mr. Churchill is not alone. He has friends not only in Britain, but in the United States as well. A point to be noted is that in this respect, Mr. Churchill and his friends bear a striking resemblance to Hitler and his friends. 
Hitler began his work of unleashing war by proclaiming a race theory, declaring that only German-speaking people constituted a fully-fledged nation. Mr. Churchill begins to set war loose, also by a racial theory, maintaining that only nations speaking the English language are fully-fledged and called upon to decide the destinies of the entire world. The German racial theory brought Hitler and his friends to the conclusion that the Germans are the only fully-fledged nations and that they must rule over other nations. The English racial theory brings Mr. Churchill and his friends to the conclusion that nations speaking the English language, being the only fully-fledged nations, should rule over the remaining nations of the world. It is therefore highly probable that the nations not speaking English and which, however, make up an enormous majority of the world's population will not consent to go into the new slavery. The tragedy of Mr. Churchill lies in the fact that he, as a deep-rooted Tory, cannot understand this simple, obvious truth. I mean, what we say in East Tennessee is them's fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> they do sound like fighting words. And does this fan the flames of the Cold War? Are these really fighting words to Stalin? I believe that's right. I feel like in this, there is a faux outrage. That Stalin's like, how could he say this? This is outrageous. Oh, they're just like Hitler and the Nazis. Oh, this is crazy. And, you know, one of the reasons I read this is that today there's so much faux outrage and immediately online, as you know, in any discussion board, people will go to the Nazis. Well, this is Stalin going to the Nazis. And the reason I say it's a faux outrage is because Stalin, since Yalta, has been nitpicking, trying to get extra pieces of the pie for himself. You can see this, again, most obviously in Turkey, where he's desperate to get access to the Mediterranean. But elsewhere in Asia, elsewhere in Eastern Europe, you know, the things in Poland, I mean, obviously one of the great and bizarre things about the Second World War is that it started over Poland, and ultimately Poland winds up with the Soviets, whereas Greece goes with the Allies because of the naughty document, as Churchill called it, in his exchanges with Stalin. So Stalin knows exactly what's happening, because in many ways, he is antagonizing the situation himself. So Churchill just comes out and says, look, this is how it is. And so Stalin then has to reciprocate by being outraged. And so what this does, I think both men understood what was happening. But what it does for their audience, I think, is very important. Because initially, Americans were like, no, no, we're not tied to that. But of course, within months, they are. Within months, America is like, no, no, you're a commie. And the same is true of the Soviets. They hear what Stalin's saying and they think, gosh, the West are a bunch of Nazis. They got a racial theory. They got an English-speaking people theory. So the other thing that's interesting about this to me is that when Churchill writes a book, a series of books called A History of the English-Speaking People, which again is a vague geographic imperial text, right? Because it's not the history of England. It's not even the history of the United Kingdom. It's not a history of America or a history of Australia or New Zealand. It's a history of English-speaking peoples well, that feeds into what Joseph Stalin's talking about. And you can imagine how people on the other side of the Iron Curtain would be like, what the hell, bro? What are you doing? So there's all these tensions. Now, the thing to remember is that when Churchill enters his second premiership, or the third, technically, when he enters into 51-55 premiership, he starts that as probably a pretty solid Cold War. You know, they're talking about what's going on in Korea. He's just wanting to help America out. He also understands things for him change in 1953 for two reasons. Number one, suddenly there's a hydrogen bomb. You know, there's a true thermonuclear explosion. And he even says having soldiers now in far-flung places in the old imperial model doesn't make sense. 
this can destroy an entire city in a blink of an eye. So having soldiers in the Sudan, who cares? We're beyond that. Because he's always been interested in science and quantum physics and things like that. The other big change for Churchill in 1953, of course, is that Joseph Stalin dies. And when he dies, Churchill sees an opportunity to erase that kind of I'm a warmonger thing, which is very much in play in 1946, which harkens back to what was going on in the Jeanette crisis in 1922. And he sees an opportunity to say, I can save the world again as a good guy. And so he makes it his business to try to figure out a detente situation between the Soviet Union and the United States. And he lays the groundwork in many ways. You know, he also has a stroke in 1953. So he's doing a lot of this through a proxy of Jock Colville. A lot of this is unsung stuff that Colville did a lot for Winston Churchill that nobody really knows about. Jock Colville himself is a major player in history. And we always see Jock as a lens into what's going on in Churchill's world or Eisenhower's world, whatever. But Jock, people forget that Jock Colville is an actor in this. And maybe someday I'll get to write a biography of Jock Colville because he's a fascinating guy. But he's a player in this, and he's doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes and secret diplomacy-wise to try to line things up. And they do ultimately line things up so that by 1959, we see it come to fruition when Eisenhower meets Nikita Khrushchev. And that's the sort of formal beginning of the detente. But we know that it doesn't work that way. Eisenhower didn't call up Nikita Khrushchev one day and say, hey, let's get a coffee. It takes years of tiny micro-planning things to lead to that. That process starts in 1953 under Churchill's direction of looking for a detente. Wow, that's fascinating because then you really start to outline the next decades of the Cold War. And there's a lot of other stuff in play in the 50s because it's not as straightforward as Churchill solely being about finding detente. I would say that was his priority. But because there's all the clandestine stuff going on, Again, because of Churchill in 46, America and the UK are tied. So in 1953, again, when Iran has a coup, it turns out that the authors of the coup are British and American, not Iranian or Persian, as it was called at the time, which again plants a seed that becomes a horrific seed that we have to deal with in 1979 during the Islamic Revolution. And that's become a serious. So you can see these little things that happen in Churchill's later career have effects that we're still dealing with today. And this is what is remarkable, is that some of those things, not all of them, but some of them, and a lot of them, in fact, can be tied back to this speech, the sinews of peace, because it's from here that so many things evolve. Like, and here's just a, for instance, Churchill is a part of this, and this could be a fourth thing that he sets up, but it's not really when he sets it up. But he's laying the groundwork for, okay, if there's a Cold War, or if there's an Iron Curtain, whatever you want to call it, that means that Western Europe needs to be united. Well. In September in 1946, he goes to Zurich and gives the United States of Europe speech, which, of course, lays the groundwork for the European Union and makes Winston Churchill one of the primary architects of the European Union. And there's some fantastic books on this, because obviously this has been a hotly debated thing under the premiership of Johnson, where some of his allies would denounce. I mean, Andrew Roberts has famously laughed all this stuff off, but a European member of parliament who's a good friend of mine, Felix Kloss wrote an excellent book on Churchill in Europe, which talks about all the ways in which Churchill had been an architect of this, of the United States of Europe, of the European Union, and worked the European Court of Human Rights and did some really amazing things. Now, where Roberts is right, I think, is that this all happens while Attlee's in the premiership. So by the time 
Churchill's back in the premiership in 51. It's kind of like the boat left the dock and he couldn't really shape it the way he wanted it. So he didn't care. And I mean, that's the historical reality of it because he put a lot of time and effort and money and energy into trying to shape it. And then it didn't happen. So he moved on and worked with what he knew he could work with. But the point is, is that again, this gets tied back to this speech in 1946. And that's in September, 1946. And then he goes to Hague in 1947 and again, really pushes these things. So this moment in the post-war world where Churchill lays out what the world's going to look like, again, like you say, we're dealing with all that today. Now, what we're not dealing with today is, of course, the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed. So in many ways, there's a different other Russian problem, right? That's not the Soviet Union. But if we go back to the idea and the notion, and I firmly believe this, and I'm thinking of writing on this, that actually this isn't about a Cold War. That's, you know, for America, it's an ideological thing, but for Britain, it's not. For Britain, this is great game politics. This is 19th century tournament of shadow stuff. That's exactly what we're doing today. Russia is not the Soviet Union anymore. It's not at all, but it has its own interests and it does its own things according to its own ways. And that creates static, right, in the West because we're like, hey, man, this is our sphere of influence. You can't go over here and kill people with radiated poison because that's messed up. And so they're trying to push those boundaries traditionally as Russia did and has done and will continue to do because that's how the great game works. So I think seeing this through a lens of pragmatic great game politics is much more useful than understanding it as a Cold War ideological capitalism versus communism kind of thing. This is much more about pragmatism and how power works in a geostrategic setting than it is about ideology, in my opinion. And we can see that play out today. And again, we can link it all back at that center point of the sinews of peace speech. So it's a hugely historically important moment. And it happened in Fulton, Missouri. I don't know if you had a chance to go there, but it's a remarkable place to visit. I have one more thing to say before we bounce. And this is a personal story for me, and you'll enjoy this, James. So I've been invited to the U.S. Embassy a few times, and a friend of mine and I went for a pub quiz one night. And we were on the Churchill table. That was the name of our team. And we've been doing pretty well, quoting movies and that kind of stuff and winning. And it came down to the very last question about whether or not we'd win. And the question was about this speech. And everybody on my team, there's probably 10 of us. They're like, oh, Warren's got this. Warren's going to solve this one. We're going to be the winners. And the prize was autographed cookbooks from Michelle Obama and some other things. And so well, we're all getting excited. And then the question comes. Now, I'm going to ask you this question to see if you know. Oh, gosh. And I'll know if you look it up. <laughs> About the sinews of peace speech. The question isn't what does it say or what does it mean or anything like that. The question is how long was it? Oh, God, what a question. How long did it take him to give? Well, I had no idea, and I got it wrong by two minutes, and I tanked the whole thing, and no one's ever forgiven me since. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to have a guess. I'm going to have a guess. Um, Churchill wasn't known for particularly short speeches, was he? So That's correct. He was the long-winded gentleman. Yeah, let's say one hour, 27 minutes. Okay, that's not a crazy guess. That's a pretty good guess. I said 45 minutes. Yeah. It was 43 minutes and 11 seconds. Oh, my word. Well, okay. Well, then we've shown the clear demarcation here between me and you as a world expert Churchill historian. <laughs> well, I've still got people that won't talk to me that were on that table. <laughs> <laughs> no, I bet. Oh, God. Well, you'll never get that question wrong again. 
That's for certain. No, I'll, I'll never forget it. Thank you so much, Warren, for coming on The World Wars and for showing us that even after 80 years, that the Iron Curtain speech and its legacies still live on. I'm going to give you another chance here to tell our listeners where they can learn more about Churchill, his own works, and the importance of his politics and actions. So my own works on Churchill in the Islamic world and Churchill at the Telegraph are freely available. I also published a book on Routledge about Jock called Private Secretaries to the Prime Ministers, which is a Routledge book, which is also available on Amazon. I would also recommend everybody go to the Churchill Archives website. A lot of Churchill's papers can be publicly viewed, have been digitized, and you can see them online. And some of the other things that I think that I would plug, obviously, you can always follow me on Twitter. That's just at Warren Doctor. And hopefully you'll learn lots about Winston Churchill and history. And I hope you've had a great time. I can't thank you enough for having me on, James. It's been a lot of fun. Warren, thank you so much. And you are always welcome on the World Wars. Thank you, sir. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.